2: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Dagena Dor, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we're really honored to have Dr. Wrench Totem on the show to talk about her new book, A Monastery on the Move, Art and Politics in Later Buddhist Mongolia, published by the University of Hawaii Press in 2020. Warna, welcome to the show. Hi, everyone. Hi, Degena. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you. Um, I was wondering if we could begin our interview with you saying a few words about yourself and how you became interested in Inner Asian studies and particularly in Mongolian Buddhist art. Okay, so um, um, I was
1: born and raised in Mongolia, and um, I uh, studied art history all my life, um, mostly European art, but um, um, I wrote my master's thesis on Mongolian Buddhist art in Ihude in this monastery, which is known for foreign uh, visitors as Urga. And the abundance of artworks were so amazing and so also mysterious, um, convoluted histories that I decided to pursue uh, more uh, academic work on that. And when I became a PhD student at Berkeley, that was my dissertation project. And so um, I dedicated my uh, study and my uh, research area to um, uh, Buddhist Mongolian Buddhism in general. but I also have a second research area which is contemporary art and um, I I'm a practicing curator. I organize international exhibitions of A Mongolian contemporary artist. I show Mongolian artists in Venice Biennale, in Shanghai Biennale, and uh, elsewhere. Uh, So I'm very passionate generally about Mongolian art. I truly believe um, in its high quality, but I feel very uh, sad that uh, the world just doesn't know about Mongolian art and have this very pejorative views about Mongolian culture in general. Um, and also, um, I took this new job at Heron School of Art and Design at Indiana University. And this job is not only teach art history courses, uh, specifically in my field of Asian art history, but also it gives me opportunities to be linked with IU Bloomington's uh, Central Eurasian Studies, which hosts one of the largest programs in Mongolian studies and the library and resources. And at Heron, I chair international studies, uh, which also allows me to uh, bring Mongolian artists to Heron and uh, so link my research interest with my teaching and international studies all uh, uh, while I'm at
2: Heron. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah, um, you are really doing a lot of groundbreaking and pioneering work in bringing Mongolian Buddhism, Mongolian Buddhist arts into um, everybody's sort of perspectives and um, bring a lot of really amazing kind of artistic talents um, onto this international stage. So thank you so much for doing that. Um, Before we actually dig into your new book, um, can you tell us a little bit about how you came to write uh, A Monastery on the Move? What was sort of the story behind the project?
1: (laughs) Yeah, so as I just briefly mentioned, when I was writing my my thesis in Mongolia, I I, um, did research in museums, and I just realized how much is um, there, how much is materially, the objects, the arts, the sculpture, the temples, and yet, and so little known, almost nothing is known, and uh, so this became a dissertation topic, and for that dissertation topic, I came to... U.C. Berkeley to work with Professor Patricia Berger, who actually was a pioneering curator at Asian Art Museum in San Francisco in 1995, organizing the first and only exhibition of Mongolian art, Mongolian Buddhist art, at in United States. And so uh, Pat was passionately also supporting my interest to study with her and. Uh, it was a long story, long kind of journey to come from Mongolia to United States in 2002 and become her student. But it was an eye-opening moment for me, uh, hungry for knowledge um, and um, study uh, and write my thesis, my dissertation thesis. And then um, it, had a, it has also some personal touch in this because Urga was a monastery which uh, existed prior to building the capital city of Mongolia, Ulaanbaatar and so my parents they also were residents of old um, monastic site in fact my maternal side had a, a priest who was a high ranking priest buddhist priest buddhist monk in in Uhuri in urga and my father also, for in the beginning of his career, he was also studied in Buddhist college to become a Buddhist monk. But then socialism hit, and he never uh, came to be a Buddhist monk, but he became an artist and then art an historian. So it has also a connection to the site itself. Although it's no, non-existent, it was destroyed and replaced by this uh, capital city, Ulaanbaada. But it was also this kind of personal interest of this uh, my parents who, who lived here and who met there and, and stuff like that.
2: Thank you. Yeah, well, I'm really excited to, you know, see this book finally in, in print, right right in my hands. I've had the privilege and the honor to um, attend some of your talks based on your dissertation work and also, um, I guess, your manuscript for the book. But it's so exciting to finally read uh, the entire project's in its whole. Um, So the book is also one of the very few monograph studies on Buddhist art in Mongolia published in the West and also in the English language. And in this volume, you're using an amazing variety of really beautiful visual, architectural, archaeological and oral historical resources um, that have been long overlooked. Um, So please tell us more about researching Mongolian Buddhism using these sources what kind of insights did they review that textual sources, um, you know, usually don't? And what are some of the challenges of using this material, material, uh, visual, and also oral history to study Buddhism? Um,
1: thank you for this question, Nagyana. So uh, yes, I uh, into interdisciplinary uh, approach to study art is is the nature. Is the heart of my uh, theoretical and methodological focus, which I employ in in this book. And I'm uh, I'm uh, aware of the disciplinary uh, limitations um, and biases that exist when we div- make those divisions between uh, humanities and social sciences, or between Buddhist studies and um, Art art history, art history has its own sort of uh, uh, limitations, uh, primarily concerned about uh, provenance of the artworks, stylistic uh, uh, analysis, and so on and so forth. And uh, the Mongols, the Mongol nature is that this is a nomadic country, and these people are often on the move because of the continental issues, climate. Continental weather and the pasture and the herding uh, economy they have. And so uh, Mongol culture is also very uh, central. about the oral history and oral tradition. So before even Mongols adopted Buddhism as one of the uh, major spiritual beliefs, uh, the long-standing tradition is oral tradition, is how the orally transmitted uh, epics and folklore and knowledge passes um, through the Mongol communities, which are scattered uh, in Eurasian steppes. So when we read only... Uh, textual sources, and um, in Buddhism, in later Buddhism, where my my period is, is mainly written in Tibetan language, foreign language for for the most of the Mongols. Um, I kind of, I am concerned that we have one perspective only, uh, and this is a sort of a quote unquote official type of records that were written. in language by those monks who were trained in Tibetan tradition who oftentimes went to to be trained in um, Tibetan uh, monasteries so I aimed to, when we look at art, it, it is very complicated. It's so complex that we can't depend on knowledge and limit our knowledge only to, to Tibetan sources, which, which give us one, one form of knowledge. But epistemology for the Mongols, for the communities that are nomadic in their nature, the culture comprises various kinds of forms of knowledge. And so I employ in my study um, visual sources because it's central architecture, because it's about Urga, but then oral histories as well as um, the um textual sources written in Tibetan language.
2: Thank you. And challenging sort of this narrative sorry, preserved in Tibetan texts, you also mentioned, um, especially in sources like hagiographies and also Qing documents. Um, so these visual, material and oral history sources um, in Mongolia that you use in the book, um, tell a very different story of Buddhism and reveal very different power dynamics between the Mongols, Tibetans, and the rest of the Qing empire. This is also very coming out from your book. Um, so what does this tell us about Buddhism in Mongolia in the Qing? How should we approach, um, the study of Buddhism in this very unique region?
1: Yeah. So, um, this is the really the core that uh, the core question uh, that I'm trying to tangle, uh tackle with, and uh, unpack in my uh, book uh, throughout its six chapters, and this is because uh, this is the rise of um, Qing Empire in 1639. When uh, uh, the main protagonist of the Bukhzana Bazaar was enthroned as a new reincarnation uh, ruler in Mongolia, but 1639 is such a forming period, politically speaking and historically speaking, because the Qing Empire was not built yet. Qing uh, will will call themselves the Manchu people will call themselves Qing, and formation will be dated since 1644, and as well as the Keluk. Um, uh, political institution will be in power from 1642. So this is a very, very sort of uh Important period for power relations, for building up the, the new powers and new borders in Inner Asia between the Mongols. And within the Mongols, there are several communities. It's the Halha, the Oirats, the Tumid, and so on and so forth. And then there are this Inner Asian new powers that are competing and vying for authority in the region, such as the, the Manchu and the Gelug. And remember, the the Mongols were in relation with the Sakya school of Tibetan four schools, but then the Geluk school um, uh, became, uh, the Geluk hierarchs became interested in political establishment and political hierarchy um, uh, from this time onwards. And the civil war in Tibet uh, was uh, vicious until 1640. Forty-two with the victory of the Gelug. So what we learned from looking at art in in Urga and Mongolian sources is that the Mongols were were part of all this power conversation uh, during this uh, early, uh, mid-17th century in the region um, and that the history was taking shape borders were shaping at this time and so mongols were seeing themselves as agents as another community that wanted to be parallel with this new emerging powers
2: Hmm. thank you yeah and this path this cut sort of desire to be parallel to um, the rest of the inner asia in terms of um, their role in in Buddhism is really central in your book, especially in the first two chapters when we focus on this, um, the first book, Gigan, the first Jitsundamba, Zenabazaar, right? So chapter one of your book introduces this really fascinating character um, who is also a Hohomongo ruler. Um, So the chapter um, focuses on this person, but also his mobile monastery and nomadic encampments at Ihure. So please tell us about this um, historical figure and also his monastery on the move. So how did he become a dually religious and political authority for the Hoha Mongols? And also, how did Ihure, this monastery on the move, work to reflect that?
1: Yeah, so the first chapter uh, talks about Zanabazar from the perspective uh, that he was seen and um, enthroned, uh, that's the term that is used in, in text, enthroned, as is a Egyptian ruler uh, from the Kalha perspective. And uh, he was a descendant of Chinggis Khan, and this lineage uh, that uh, dates to Chinggis uh, Khan directly is known as a or Golden Lineage. And so he was a nobleman uh, from his pedigree. And uh, in 1639, when he was only five years old, this uh, child is suddenly enthr- enthroned as a ruler, which is a interesting turn of events. And then he is raised um, as both a secular ruler and as a Buddhist ruler, and so we see that in art, we see in the structure of Urga, of this encampment, because we read that he, the, the, his father built a residence, a gear or a yurt for him, which is a nomadic dwelling. And it is a very normal uh, sort of part of the culture when there is a new uh, person uh, born that you built a new gear, new yurt. However, what happens is that this gear becomes also uh, associated with a temple monastic institution, and then it uh, uh, arranged along the lines of imperial symbolism that we read about in early accounts uh, of European travelers to Mongol courts, such as Flana Carpini and William Rubro, they describe yurts um, and uh, different colors of yurts, for instance, and the understandings and symbolism of imperial uh, presence in these yurts. So we learned that uh, from Zanabazar and the structures that are associated with his name, that he everything, the structure was really Mongolian in its character. And so the first chapter dedicated to talking about this association, this view on him as a uh, really a um, halha Mongol ruler uh, connected to the imperial tradition. And also I mentioned about um, the fact that he is recognized as a reincarnation of a very different school in Tibet, known as Jonang School, which was refurbished and purged by the Geluk. So right there, in the very beginning, we see this kind of plot playing out by the Halha Khans, father and his allies around this, this child, Zanabazar when he was taken into the throne, enthronement. And... So from here on, we start to see that uh, he was envisioned as a Halha authority in early time and being away from the Geluk in the very beginning because he was recognized as a Jonan histori- t- historian, historian has reincarnation. But this it comes out only in oral histories and in art that does not mention, it's not mentioned very much in the high geographies and other textual sources.
2: Yeah, and one really interesting thing you uh, you dig into in this chapter is architectures, right? So architectures also reveal a lot of important clues to Zana Barzer's authority and his role um, that textual sources obviously don't. So you also talked about the firmly white assembly hall, right? right Can you tell yeah. us a bit about that? Yeah,
1: it's interesting that um, this... Uh, 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 General understanding is yurt is usually white because it's covered by felt, but then we read in rubric uh, and in Plana that there are different colors associations and color symbolism. And so uh, Plana Carpini writes about the assembly gear for the uh, nobleman at imperial court, where the assembly happens in a big gear and it's white. And then he talks about yellow gear and he talks about golden gear, which is a enthronement uh, gear uh, court for, for the imperial uh, entourage. So, uh, and I uh, connected this uh, association of assembly meeting in a white gear specifically to the firmly white because the name in Mongolian of the assembly hall uh, associated with Zenobazar is Atsarang uh, or is it firmly white? And so it it uh, when we see the structure of it, architectures, design of it, is based on a tent, on a large tent. And it is a portable architecture. Uh, Just like major, uh, all uh, temples within this encampment, Urga, were all portable and they were all mobile. So they could move easily, uh, disassembled, and then move somewhere. And we know from different texts that the site moved from as far as from northern border to the southern border of Inner Mongolia through the Gobi Desert and then even east and west. Um, so this imperial symbolism, maintaining it as a white assembly hall would be associated with this nobility and then the golden uh, color uh, yellow palace will be associated with this uh, court association. All this comes from 13th century traditions.
2: Hmm. Yeah. And um, there's so many different um, interesting details that the book um, explores also Um, directions, right? When certain structures are called a certain direction that also has very deep kind of cultural meanings that will give us um, clues into how the politicization works. Um, So I highly recommend our readers, you know, pick up a copy and dig into that part. (laughs) Um, so chapter two now introduces Xennabuzer as a polymath and also a Renaissance man right who is really well versed um, not just in Buddhist scholarship but also in poetry and language and also arts. right So it seems that art and architecture actually had a very special significance for his religious and political visions. Um, so tell us why would an eminent Buddhist monk engage so actively with art making? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, uh,
1: Zenobazar is known um, as a eminent artist. So he was a sculptor and a painter, and a designer of a new script uh, uh, named as a Soyombo script. And uh, many cultural traditions of Mongolian Buddhism, such as design of monastic robes, for instance, even, uh, date to uh, the time of Zanabazar. But art is, uh, as you know, Buddhism uh, is very, very uh, central on art. It's very visual culture, generally, right, Buddhism. And so... When we see uh, Zanabatsar now mentioned as an artist who digs into this uh, making, these big sculptures, and we do have those sculptures in museums in Mongolia, and then an ongoing archaeological excavation of his Dharma seat in northern part of Mongolia now uh, unearthed uh, more than 3,000 sculptures of different sizes, uh, some of them are very monumental sizes, um, made of clay. So. Uh, art was definitely very central to building Buddhist tradition for Zenobazar and for his mission of a, being a dual uh, ruler, a religious uh, fusing uh, the religious and the secular authority into this one um, embodiment of Zenobazar. And um, uh, also, uh, I discuss his other temples which he had. It's not only his Urga, his, this, uh, gear based, uh, site that was mobile and moving, but he's known also building this big dharma seat in 1654, uh, where now archaeological, uh, diggings are going on and it was burnt by the other Mongol community, uh, Dzungars and 1689, uh, And so, uh, We ask why he was... uh, Usually the sources, when they're talking about the mobility of Urga, they talk about... the general nomadic uh, search for pastures, because um, no- nomads look for fresh water and fresh uh, pasture for their horses and cattle, and so they move. But then I talk about, when we look at the nature of the monasteries associated with the name of Zanabutsar, two things come to mom- uh, to uh, as uh, a hallmark quality in them is that uh, Buddhist sites are really retreat sites to retreat from worldly life and concentrate on meditation practice and so they are located as such. One of them is located on top of a hill uh, very far away from, from any type of activities and even today to get to the side, you have to uh, uh, sort of hike on, uh, to the top of the mountain through very dense forest. The other one is another very extremely difficult terrain where again you, you cannot really go by anything but by a horse or by on feet uh, and it's very difficult to access. So it doesn't only, uh, meaning that uh, building the nature of these monasteries, Cox uh, uh, tells us about the Dzenabuzhar being a very serious practitioner and very serious Buddhist teacher. But other side of this other hallmark about mobility, I uh, argue in in the book and show in my book, is that he was also interested in building a Sangha, a strong uh, community of, of Buddhist supporters because remember, it's not, he was never the first person who introduced Buddhism to Mongolia. In fact, uh, it was a late dissemination of Buddhism in Mongolia, right? And Buddhism was never really introduced among the nomads. It was practiced often among the elites, among the among the erudite, but the nomads were not really introduced to Buddhism. So Tsenang is the first person who I think used the mobility of his site um, to reach out to these Mongol communities, and itinerancy was the excellent way to do so. so art becomes a very important way of having um, this a continuation of imperial tradition visible in art, and using those styles that were used by Mongol emperors before him. And so Mongols are aware of those traditions, of those styles. Um, and so he uses them in his art specifically to reach to those masses to for dissemination of Buddhism among the nomads and build his Sangha. And he becomes very successful in this, because even until today, Zanabazar is and respected as kind of uh, the Vishwakarma, the Buddhist sculptor, the Buddhist uh, um, uh, artist who brought Buddhism to Mongolia.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. From your book, it's definitely very. Uh, it becomes very obvious that Zenobrazor was very much of an expert on using visual symbols and imagery to to create, if if we can call it that, a branding, right? Um, for a kind of Buddhism that he wants to promote amongst uh, a wider public audience. Um, let's talk about his artistic, art, artistic style a little bit. Um, it's very interesting to see how prominent this Nepalese style is in his sculptures, right? This kind of very slender-shaped Buddhist figures with a small waist, Um but interestingly, you also point out in the book that his style was not followed by later Buddhist artists. Um, can you tell us why this is the case?
1: Yeah, so um, uh, many art historians um, have pointed out and described that his style is very Nepalese, in style in nature and associated with, uh, uh, for instance, um, the art styles that we see in early Central Tibetan art. Um, and uh, uh, we do have, uh, for instance, uh, uh, monumental images of, uh, for instance, Vajra Bairuva dating to 14th century, and uh, which was produced during Yuan period, um, and it does have also uh, this Nivari style. So, uh, I show that um, Nepalese connection with uh, comes can be traced through his visits, his personal connection to three sites uh, that we know uh, that he visited in person. And those sites were all connected to Mongol imperial tradition. And one of them is, for instance, Shalu. So this is uh, something that we don't read in Tibetan sources, in Tibetan-language Mongolian sources, which talk about Zanabazar primarily as a Gelug adherent. They do not mention the, uh, the sites where he went outside of Gelug monasteries, for instance. But when we look at uh, uh, autobiography of uh, Panchen Lama um, and Fifth Dalai Lama, we read that Zanabazar visited Shalu on a regular basis. And Shalu is in central Tibet, in Tsang, and it was uh, the monastery that was uh, developed, really, with Yuan patronage, with Mongol patronage. And uh, they, uh, they, it still maintains those wonderful wall paintings at Shalu, which were made in 14th century with Mongol patronage, and they do explicitly show this Nivari style. So Zanobazar must have seen them because he was in Shalu. And also he he lived in Beijing as a close ally with Kansi Emperor. And so in in Beijing and in Rutaishan, um, also there are these stupas uh, which remained uh, from the productions by Nepalese artist Anige, who was employed by Kublai Khan. And so all these connections lead to the Mongol uh, employment of Anige at Yuan court. Yuan patronage and Yuan activities in central Tibet prior to Tzenabazaar. And uh, even in post-Yuan period, in Alten Khan's text, we read these references to Nepal, um, especially in craftsmanship, in Smith work, in sculpture as part of imperial tradition. So when we see imperial tradition now ex- uh, exhibited in Zenobazar style, Uh, It's more than Nepalese that he thought, I argue in my book, but he thought about that visual idiom that is connected to his own historical past and the historical past of the people whom he served, which is the Mongol nomads, and they're aware of the Mongol traditions of this imperial visual uh, language. And... So my um, contribution into this uh, discussion about Nepalese connection is that Nepalese for Mongols became associated associated with the knowledge of this larger region of the Mongol imperial symbolism.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.
2: Thank you, thank you. Yeah, this is really helpful. And um, in chapter three, we kind of turn to Xanabazar's identity as a Geluk disciple both of the 5th Dalai Lama and the 4th Panchalama. And this identity is um, frequently emphasized in textual sources, for example, in his um, hydrography or namtar and also in history. Um, however, your research on his portraits review that his re- visual kind of representations complicate the singular, um, you know, Tibetan influence reading of who Zanabazar was. So what other kinds of overlapping or even, you know, conflicting identities emerge from looking at his portraits? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, um, definitely when we look at uh, Zainabetsar's portraits, we see different types of portraiture and um, even different styles employed. Um, uh, You earlier asked me why his style was not continued by his successors, different artists, artists. uh, who later produced arts, and um, I explained that, uh, described that uh, with the vision of Zanabazar as as a part of of this lineage of the golden lineage himself, and also being seen as such by his community. So only him. Was sort of, uh, kind of, uh, mandated to use this style in art. And then his successors departed from the tradition because they were not affiliated with imperial symbolism and they moved on to use the Geluk styles and Geluk visions and Geluk uh, iconographies in art. When we see, uh, uh the different types in Zanabazar's uh, portraiture, we do said very, very explicitly. For instance, uh, we have, um, this, uh, uh, print uh, uh, carved in woodblock, um, and which means uh, by the medium itself that it was printed in numerous copies and distributed among the Mongols or uh, other communities around uh, to show uh, Zenabazar from a particular vision of him as a secular ruler. And a secular ruler as a secular man from Mongol perspective is is he is slicing, he's sitting there and he's uh, holding a uh, a sheep tail and he's slicing it. So for Mongol co- conception of, of a leader is that only a leader is allowed to touch the sheep tail, it has a particular connotation of power, authority and then you slice it and then distribute the slices of meat to your community to share your food. So he's depicted like that in that woodblock print, which is now distributed uh, you can find many copies of it um, in different monasteries. And then not only it was distributed as a prince, but also it was developed by artists into very finely made tanka color paintings. And we have a copy of this, for instance, in the Rubin Museum, we have copies of these tanka paintings based on this print in Mongolian museums and so on and so forth. But yet another type of uh, portraiture developed with a Qing environment now um uh through the Chingalok alliance is that we have him depicted as a very transcendental image of a Buddhist monk. Who is seated in the center of this fine tanka and then he is holding two main attributes, vajra and belt, uh, in this particular hand gesture, uh, akin to Vajrasattva, hierarchically very highly uh, ranked, highly seated uh, um, deity. Um, and then he, uh, there is also inscription on this painting which directly quotes uh, the Manjushri Emperor. Or the Kansi Emperor and the, the close bond they shared, Zanabazar and uh, Kansi Emperor, and this inscription was made into a uh, chanting prayer, which is still used in Mongolian monasteries. Every monastery chants this prayer uh, as a prayer to supplication prayer to Zanabazar, but it is citing the Qing Emperor itself.
2: Mm. Wow, it's really powerful. I mean, th- this really shows how important, right, looking at um, material and visual culture to study Buddhism is because it's not only these sources, not only kind of complement textual sources, but they often provide alternative or even very, very different, um, contradicting stories and narratives. Um, so it's really, really powerful. Um, um, the, the power of image, yeah, yeah, yes, indeed, and I also wanted to mention that the main textual source
1: of uh, the Zenobius's biography is written during his lifetime in 1698 by his own disciple Diopadeta uh, Lopson Perinley. Um, And in that source, uh, Zayapadita talks about him as a disciple, as a Giluk disciple of Fifth Dalai Lama and Panchalama and how important a monk he was and a teacher was, what kind of initiations he had, what kind of uh, sort of... uh, uh, the teaching he had. However, he also mentions, and this is something that uh, many scholars overlooked, is that he also mentions how much respected Tanavatar was among the secular communities. All these banners, all these Khans and all these Mongols sort of follow Tzana This is how Los Imperiles describes. And then when he goes to Beijing to meet with Kansi Emperor, Kansi Emperor really uh, respects him and shares food with him, and shares his residence with him, invites him to the palace, and they go together hunting. And so all this shows his kind of dual uh, uh, identity that he embodied, uh, which is religious authority and also political authority
2: hmm Thank you. Thank you for adding that. Um. And the next chapter, chapter four, we kind of look at how um subsequent Jats and so reincarnations of Zenabazars and their portraits, um, um, co- sort of combine cultural idioms from diverse sources from Chinese, Mongolian, and Tibetan traditions. Um, And in your words, enshrining a third space um, that is, quotes, neither one or two, but a whole constructed by an inseparable three, unquote. Um, So please tell us about how these cultural elements work together in later Qing era portraits of this Mongolian uh, Buddhist lineage.
1: Yes, yeah, so altogether there were eight reincarnations of uh, Jibzundamba lineage, uh, Zainabhazar being first, and the second was born into his own family of Hang, uh, who was one of the four Khans uh, in this golden lineage. Uh, But then the rest six were all born in Tibet and discovered in Tibet, but they then they went through and uh uh, authorized by the Qing court and Beijing, and then they were taken to Urga to be recognized now as a Khalkha uh, ruler, and so. Each Jebtsundamba had their portraiture, and each Jebtsundamba has portraiture, which tells us very different stories, and the struggle of building their power, and uh, being part of this now very cosmopolitan empire of the Qing, and the, also the portraiture shows us how visual language during the Qing became one, another means for the Qing to build the cosmopolitan polymath culture. And visual language uh, also made also this kind of divisions of exclusion and inclusion and periphery in the center and and bringing the Kalkas and Jebtsundabas now into the periphery of the empire, uh, subordinate now as a vassal state to the chain. So they share um, the styles that this uh, portraits show us. Uh, very selective iconographies, very selective styles, motifs, um, deities that they show, um, various uh, ornaments they show, symbols they show, are very selectively arranged to be read properly by all these audiences you know, in, in China, in in uh Tibet as well, among the Halha, among the Mongols, and being accepted. So Jabzund were new reincarnation rulers and they they had to be accepted by the Mongols, but they had to be also uh endorsed by the three uh authorities in in Qing and in Gelug. So the artists uh, were very knowledgeable about the styles and the motifs. Um, I would like to mention one uh, such artist, Agwan Sharok, for instance. In uh, himself, a learned monk in Urga, and we have several paintings by him. But he was. Uh, equally active in, in Qing Court and equally active in Urga and his painting show that kind of very seamless blend of cultures. Uh, as Patricia Berger says, quotation of styles, or another scholar Caparelli, says, international style of the dialogpa So this becoming this kind of international was very much part of this uh, political scheme of the Qing to bring this cosmopolitan uh, unified Empire under the yellow umbrella of the Qing Emperor.
2: Hmm. Yeah. Very fascinating. And another really kind of remarkable thing that you mentioned in the in this chapter is the agency of the Jeti Tamba porters themselves, right? especially in the ritual circumambulation. Um. So tell us more about this. How did it work?
1: Yeah. So the um, uh, uh, when Jabzundamba uh, became a new lineage in Mongolia, it wasn't the only lineage that existed. Even prior to Zinabazar, there was already a uh, tradition built um, for the Mongols to go to Tibet and bring in new lineages. Uh, Buddhist lineages to Mongolia, and there were many other Hutuktu's or many other incarnations in Mongolia. uh, Zainab-Loh Sumpirile himself was another incarnation. Um, But then how, among all those incarnations, how you elevate the starters of Jebtsundamba, how you have all these scattered uh, nomadic communities except this Tzundaba, now Tsundaba, uh, now even a Tibetan person uh, who is brought from Tibet to Urga, how you even worship him as a ruler, how to manage all this. And many monasteries were built uh, by the time of Jibzundambas all around Mongolia, and then how you elevate the status of Urga uh, to maintain its central importance. And so all these builders and Buddhist monks and Buddhist scholars and artists worked really with this intentionally with intentionally organized effort to maintain the dual authority of of Dzubzundamba rulers as religious and a secular authority and keep the elevated status of Urga as the central seat um, where the uh, pilgrims uh, have to go and circumambulate and pay homage and pay honor to the resident who is Jibzundamba. And then uh there were so many rituals were organized, um, such as for instance Shogium ambulation and the Jutzundamba portraits uh, were seen and the mandala offerings were organized as a part of Jutzundamba worship, but there are also texts written. I uh work with um Urga's uh abbot uh Agwanghadev, who lived in mid-19th century, and he dedicated entire text to circumambulation, why one needs to circumambulate a a monastery, and why Urga specifically needs to be circumambulated. And you read there the importance of images. He writes about how images are part of these three supports of of faith, and he writes about Urga now being not only a monastery associated with Zanabazar, but a kind of reliquary as well, because it maintains Zanabazar's images, Zanabazar's objects, even the throne where he sat is there, and so on and so forth.
2: Mm. Yes, thank you, thank you for um, sharing that. Hopefully, you know um, we can read more about uh, this part of your your research very soon. Um, I- if you're writing a, a, another book <laughs> later. <laughs> um, so, in chapter five, we now see the transformation of Ihure, this monastery on the move, after Zanabazar's death uh, from a mobile monastery and nomadic encampment into a multicultural commercial center in the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, so, how are these changes captured and represented in artworks, um, especially in the two maps that you focus on in this chapter?
1: Yes, um, these are uh, the only uh, two maps that I was able to find that were made in uh, late 19th century and in 1912. Um, and they show Urga in its entire uh, uh, sort of holistic panoramic view from bird's eye view, so to speak, to show how how this uh, site was uh, developed uh, by the later Jeptsundambas. And uh, it was encampment, um, a a youth-based portable encampment, but then it um, also developed to include uh, different communities. So it was very open site. Even though it was a Buddhist monastery, it became to be open to worldly activities. Uh, even to merchants and uh, uh, the Chinese merchant town was became part, inseparable part of Urga and the Chinese merchants also would be occupying also the streets of Urga uh, where the trade was non-stop continuous and then the monks then uh, became sort of uh, very alert about the situation and they decided to build another a monastery within Urga, which is known today as the Gandan Monastery. And actually that Gandan Monastery is the only site, unfortunately, which was saved uh, from the destruction when Urga was um, completely demolished in the 1930s. And so Gandan Monastery became kind of a theological um, a center of teaching of Tantra and a very close site where women and merchants were not allowed to enter. But but uh, the, the encampment or the Yellow Palace, as it was known, Yellow Palace was very much open to worldly activities and it was included um, Buddhist temples, but it also included commercial and worldly activities such as wrestling, for instance, and these uh, traders who were on the streets of Urga. Uh, But also another interesting development of this is not only this expansion uh, architecturally, but the terms that they began to be used in in this encampment. All the temples were built as portable based on the architecture of nomadic dwellings, yurt and uh, tent. And yet uh, the terms that were used for this now... uh, Even though the firmly white was still there, firmly white assembly hall, they now used it as Sokchen uh, Dukang. And Sokchen Dukang is a Tibetan term specifically associated with Geluk monasteries. uh, even in non-Giluk, in Sakya monasteries or other uh, monasteries, there are other terms, architectural terms I use, just Dukang or uh, Tsuklakang is another term I use. But in Giluk monastic seats, Tsukchen Dukang is the major uh, assembly hall. And this term now arrives in Urga. And this term is now becomes Mongolized and used um, for uh, denoting, marking the temples in Urga. Um, and Ganden, also another Tibetan term that now becoming uh, used. So Tibetan terms now becoming uh, replaced, uh, replacing the Mongol terms and uh, being sort of uh, marking terms in, in Urga. And this shows us, even the architecture is built based on, on Mongolian traditional architecture now, they were all named after Tibetan Giluk monasteries.
2: Hmm, thank you. Yeah, another reminder that uh, looking at the architecture is also another really important component of studying Buddhism in Inner Asia. Um, and speaking of Mongolian traditions, uh, rituals and festivities were a really big part of life at Ehude, um, our monastery on the move. And so chapter six takes us into a discussion of um, this Maitreya procession, which is one of the most important rituals of the year. Um, tell us more about this ritual and its significance to this uniquely Mongolian monastery.
1: Yeah, so um, uh, so Urga um, was um, essentially now Yellow Palace, uh, central uh, part, which which was uh, uh, in conception from the times of Bazar, um and then the ganda monastery, which was now a sec- uh, second monastery within this Urga site. And uh, they all had developed different rituals to maintain the authority, the elevated status of Urga, the importance of it, the authority of it, and uh, also they maintained the authority of Jebtsundamba as the main resident of Urga. And so I describe uh, uh, well, several uh, rituals, such as my tree ritual, which you mentioned. And in a uh, Maitreya ritual is, uh, very, uh, still very used in, in Tibet. Uh, it was very developed by Tsongkhapa, by Gelug school, and it's organized usually during the Luna New Year and the, when the Maitreya, um, uh, Texts and maitre images are taken uh, through the communities, but in Mongolia, when it's when it when this uh, ritual comes to Mongolia, it's appropriated for its own use, and it's appropriated so that um, this dual rulership, the concept of dual rulership, the fusion of religious and a uh, secular authority in the bondi- embodiment of Zanabazar and Chipsundambas is taken through these rituals as well. So, Maitreya, for instance, is organized not during the lunar new year as it is in Tibet, but in during the summer days. So, when it's warm, and then all the communities, secular and religious communities, they gather together. They circumambulate together, urga, and other sites. And so, this uh, every aspect of possibilities of unifying the secular and religious communities, identities, um, is was the main goal. Uh, in addition to the Buddhist uh, doctrinal goals within these rituals, as I discuss and I show in my book. Maitreya was not only a ritual that are associated with Buddhism and practice of Buddhism, but it became associated with the Jebtsundamba's identity and authority as a dual rulership. And so um, Maitreya... Now, uh, they built a green chariot, green horse chariot for this Maitreya, which is very different from Tibet. Tibet does not have this green horse. Mongolians use this green horse as a kind of heralding age of Maitreya, associated with a green collar of Amukha city, um, And then they have this possibility of gathering this and becoming a very unified uh, sort of assembly of of noblemen, of of common folks, and secular people, lay people, and and religious authorities, but also there is also longevity uh, ritual, uh, danshi ritual, also uh, maintained throughout the history of Olga. Is then is when again a uh, is taken in the centerpiece, and uh, the uh, the, all the communities, all the Mong- mongols now gather to pray and chant together in one voice for the long life of their ruler of Um I discussed that this was kind of dual identity for, uh, Urga itself. It was very international site. It was very open, unlike uh, Beijing, for instance, unlike sites in China in Qing Empire. Um, Urga was very very open. It, it, it was very inclusive site. It included international visitors, international businesses, and it included uh, different uh, people and communities such as merchants and religious authorities. And it was it maintained it so that this dual authority of Jebtsundamba was clearly stated. Um, dual rulership, uh, or some scholars call it Buddhist government, is uh, a previously scholars maintained Buddhist uh, government as uh, specifically addressing the Qing emperor and a Buddhist government as a, a, a concept that was shared by, by the Qing and the Guluk. I argue in my book, however, when we see the Urga's rituals and uh, the cityscapes that show Urga-inclusive site, uh, which opens the doors for the world ac- ac- uh, activities as well as the Buddhist activities, we see that the Kalha vision of dual relationship was quite different. And it was all about the, uh, the reality of the ruler maintaining its, its authority in Mongolia, in Mongolian eyes.
2: Mm. Yeah, and also about the dual identity of Orga itself, the location itself. Um, I really love the artworks of these double landscapes um, that you discuss in this chapter. So they depict how religious rituals like Tam and also cultural festivals like Nadam um, were carried out in the same space at Ikhure. Um, so what does this tell us about Ikure as a monastery, as a religious space, but also a space for public activities um, in this Qing Geluk landscape? And also, how does it compare to Geluk monasteries in the Tibetan regions or in Beijing or in Manchuria? You kind of briefly talk about this, um, comparing it to Beijing, but can you tell us more?
1: Yeah, so uh, this is very, very specific to Mongolian case because... I argue that uh, from the conception um, of Zanabazzar in 1639, he was seen as a ruler and uh, from both secular and uh, religious perspectives. And uh, this vision was maintained throughout the history of Orga, and we can see that. And that was also the reason why the Orga was so, as a monastery, it became so open and and uh, inclusive of the world activities. As a monastery, it it shouldn't be a sort of a hosting wrestling, for instance, right? But it was. <laughs> so Jibzundaba, Buddhist monk Andrew, like he and ruler, he's seated, and he's sort of uh, presiding over wrestling tournament, right? And, and And we have art that depicts that. We have identical two paintings that show and number of them, not in one isolated case, but a number of sets of these dual uh, portraits or cityscapes where it shows Urga now in one depicting uh, wrestling. Uh, and Jibzunduba presiding over this tournament, and another one he's presiding over some ritual, Buddhist ritual, right? So it's even told the viewers that uh, it was the nature itself of Urga as being the authority inclusive of, of the two aspects. And dual rulership is often mentioned in the text as well as Buddhist government, Shashintur in Mongolia. Um, however, it was Seen by scholars previously as a part of this Qing discourse, I argue in my book that it was the conception of Zenbutsa himself, seen as a uh, theocratic ruler, equal in power, seen as equal in power with the Fifth Dalai Lama at the time in 1639. But uh, throughout the history of Jibtsundubas, Jy- Jy- he maintains they they the Buddhist monks and the Urga builders they maintain that knowledge, through all the sources, uh, through all these uh, means, visual, architectural, and map uh, cartographic activities, and then all this culminates in a possibility of, uh, of of becoming an independent theocratic state in 1911 by the 8th Jameson Denver, right? So we have the city itself being sort of uh, this kind of dual uh, cityscapes because of of promoting and maintaining this dual rulership from the perspectives of uh, Kalka uh, Khans and
2: Kalka communities. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And uh, speaking of double portraits or double cityscapes, um, the Ace Damba is also um, really interestingly portrayed in your book as having these fascinating double portraits along with his wife, right? Uh, revealing kind of this dual and even multiple cultural and religious identities that they embodied. Um, so what does this tell us about how Mongolian Tukos negotiated their identities in the Qing and even beyond right after the fall of the Qing Empire? Mm-hmm.
1: So um, w- this is another interesting phenomenon, which is only specific to Mongolian case, only uh, uh, sort of very characteristic to Mongolian Buddhism and Mongolian case of how Buddhism developed is that now we have portraits of teachers, Jezundamba, for instance, but only Bazar and only the age of are portrayed in um, in double portraiture. So this uh, dual rulership is portrayed visually as two portraits. And uh, the uh, scholars and uh, the audiences, the writers previously have uh, described uh, Zanabazzar's double portraiture as him and his mother. I show in my book that they can be read in various ways. They can be read as Buddha and Bodhisattva. They can be read as as, as secular and religious. And they can be also read as uh, uh, sort of as inseparable one, the two making one. And this understanding um, moves to the identity of the ancient Tsundambar because he now realizes that long term goal of the Khalkha from 1639 in 1911, finally becoming the all inaugurated Bogd Khan of Mongolia. And in that case, he is only the second one now to depict himself in double portraiture. And in his case, we have, he is married now and he's married to a uh, a woman from Kenti, I mean, from the birthplace of Chinggis Khan. And he's married to her when he was young. And he 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 is a galuk uh, uh, kachupa or very highly uh, learned monk, but he doesn't shy away to show himself publicly with his wife, right? With his consort, we have numerous portraits of him depicted being depicted with a woman. It is a very incredible case when we have a Buddhist images now depicting a woman. Right, and then, uh, they show in these portraits various identities. They they not only their secular uh, Khan is a secular and a religious authority used in one, but he's also embodiment of sutra and tantra. And we see him being depicted as a monk. But then uh, his wife now depicted, his consort is depicted as a tantra practitioner. And um, there is another case when they're depicted completely genderless. They don't even seen as a man and a woman. Very arguably, they can be seen both as a man or both as a uh, woman because they are dip- depicted only different in color. They're identical portraits, but one uh, symbolizing the secular authority in blue robe and the other one symbolizing religious authority depicting, uh, depicted in yellow. So it's a very interesting uh, portraits which talks tells us about the nature of Buddhist uh, development in Mongolia and appropriation of Buddhist tradition in Mongolia specifically.
2: Hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's really a shame that you know our listeners cannot really see these images right as we talk about them. So this is really you know another urge um, to ask our listeners if you are interested, please go out and pick up a copy because this book contains so many fascinating, beautiful images, colored, um, amazing prints. So. University of Hawaii Press did a wonderful job at printing. Yeah, i very um, grateful about that. And also I have a
1: section where I talk about Urga now becoming a center of arts of all sorts because we have uh, different images, uh, some of the monumental size images uh, measuring uh, several meters uh, of length and height, which uh, were shown in this some religious uh, uh, rituals, uh, which were usually carried outdoors. And so um, my book tells about names of artists. So I, uh, I made an effort to look into uh, the former monk artists' uh, writings to identify different artists' names and associate, attribute different works of art to those names. Um, so I, I hope this is very helpful to understand that uh, Mongolia had many artists <laughs> and Mongolia had also very active art production, Uh, happening throughout the centuries.
2: Indeed, indeed. Thank you. So um, on that note, um, we have one more question for you. Uh, What is the state of Buddhism and Buddhist art in Mongolia today? Well, Buddhism
1: was unfortunately very much uh, uh, limited during the socialist period from 1924 uh, until uh, 1992. When Mongolia opened its doors uh, and uh, uh, turned to democratic reforms, it also lifted the taboo on faith. And so the revival of Buddhism began in its earnest. And uh, we're living in a very exciting air, air time in Mongolia when we see the reconstruction of temples, uh, collecting of texts, um, uh, finding libraries, uh, all Mongols, uh, young and old, uh, inherited inherited different sutras, texts, objects, hidden from the socialist uh, censorship, and so the reconstruction is happening in interesting ways. Not only architecturally building those temples, but collecting also those uh, objects uh, and 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 writing those new histories now based on on those uh, private shrines and private libraries uh, maintained at home or maintained sometimes in caves, outside, somewhere away from um, socialist uh, eyes in, in the past. And also uh, Mongolia is reviving those traditions, uh, now thinking about how to educate uh, Buddhist culture. and. Uh, it, the temples are built uh, but then now you have to have monks you have to build new lineages now of of uh, guru lineages of, of tradition in in and um, novices are sent uh, to study buddhism to india uh, to uh, in high province to Amdo area in in, um, China. And these people, when they come back to to Mongolia, then they begin this new guru tradition. Um, And um, another aspect of this uh, uh, revival of Buddhism is the translation and reading of texts, which was very very discouraged during the time of socialism. So Mongolians... uh, uh, reading uh, numerous Buddhist texts and translating them, making them available to uh, people who, are, who do not read Tibetan and understand, uh, understand them. And under, also questioning uh, what is Mongolian Buddhism really, how appropriation of Buddhism in Mongolia happened. This is another question that is uh, uh, among this uh, among those who are reviving. Uh, Buddhism, and I hope that my book contributes to this uh, effort, because I'm trying to also ask where uh, this tradition is coming from, how it built itself, how Buddhism developed itself in, in Mongolia, where there were so many long-standing traditions prior to arrival uh, of uh, and dissemination of Buddhism among the nomads. And uh, understanding how appropriation of Buddhism included uh, the traditions of Mongolia itself and how it t- took its own sort of Mongolian nature and Mongolian forms so that the nomads and the Mongols were able to worship it uh, even today and, and take it as, as its
2: own tradition. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, I can see how your book would also become a very indispensable uh, volume or resource for teaching Buddhism in the West, right? Um, we've been, especially in teaching um, tantric Buddhism or Tibetan Buddhism, um, I feel that you know this discussion on Mongolian Buddhism has long been overdue. so your book is definitely a really welcomed addition to this discussion. Thank you so much. Um, we've taken up so much of your time already, but we do have one one last question. Um, so tell us what are you working on right now, your current projects, and maybe one book that you would recommend to our listeners? Mm-hmm.
1: Um, well, I continue my work on Mongolian Buddhism and um Uh, uh, actually working on a manuscript which is under publishing contract and it is a book co-authored with Professor Resna Wallace at UC Santa Barbara and it is a book about Buddhist uh, texts, art, and imagination in Buddhist rituals. And my part in this book, I'm talking about two very monumental tanka paintings, which were uh, made around 1920, uh, right around the time when this Buddhist tradition was completely destroyed, and around the, around the time when uh, Jip died. And uh, uh these two monumental uh paintings not only full or crowded with visual images, but also they inscribed in two languages. We have Tibetan texts inscribed on the back uh and in front, but we all have numerous uh Mongolian language inscriptions uh inscribed throughout uh the two paintings. And I was able also to find texts uh, as a part of this uh, guru yoga tradition centered on jimtsundamba. And so my book will uh, illuminate that aspect of how guru yoga tradition developed as a big project, as I describe in texts and in images and in rituals and how they were projecting not only in the past, but also they're projecting also in the future with awareness that the future was very
2: tragic. Thank you. Yeah, that sounds very exciting. I'm definitely looking forward to that. Um, I just want to mention, again, the book that you were asking for a
1: uh, I, I would highly recommend the book that is uh, compiled by uh, two scholars, uh, Simon Wickham-Smith and Philip Martzlouf, uh two literary scholars, and uh, it's about socialist and post-socialist Mongolia, uh, nation identity and culture, and it's forthcoming in March and it uh, has very interesting chapters written by different scholars in different fields, uh, illuminating this period, what happened during socialism, and it's had a very big uh, impact on, on development of culture, literature, language, music, art, and so on and so forth.
2: Thank you. Thank you for recommending this book. I'm definitely you know, keeping my eye on that. And you know what's interesting? Um, I actually interviewed... Um, Simon Wickham spit on his new monograph um, literature mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in modern Mongolia, and he recommended your book. Well, thank you so. Much. <laughs> well, yeah, so you can see, you know, it's a it's a very friendly, very intimate small circle. <laughs> Yeah. Great! Thank you so much. Um, I've had a really great time reading your book. I learned so much. It's such a beautiful book, uh, and so many important um, discussions going on. So, thank you so much for you know taking the time to share this book with us. Congratulations again! Uh, thank you again, and thank you for inviting and talking to me uh, today.